Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends. We are back with the amazing wine educator, Jimmy Smith. Now, we mentioned in part one about his YouTube channel, which is incredibly informative. Well, at the beginning of this episode, Jimmy will tell us all about it, how the whole channel came about and give you a breakdown of the content on there. Then about 12 minutes in, we will get to the Canary Islands. We'll be looking at the major grapes that grow across this sun worshippers archipelago with a major focus on Tenerife. Why Tenerife? Because this is the main producer and exporter of Canarian wines with an incredibly rich and interesting history. I can promise you two things from this episode. You will learn so much and you will be darting straight onto the internet to find out where you can get some of these wines from. Or maybe even booking yourself a plane ticket. Don't forget that you can download the transcript so you know how all these regions and grapes are spelt and you're going to find that at the top of the show notes. And so now over to the chat. Talk to me about your wine videos on YouTube. I want everyone to go and see them. They are incredible for anybody wanting to learn about wine. There's a lot of videos. Yeah, so um, to give just a little bit of context, of course, we tie into a conversation we had earlier. I started with my first business as West London Wine School. Um, I added a wine bar to the portfolio in 2016, which is in Streatham, Streatham Wine House, cool little funky place, 200 and 250 wines, including Vangeon on the list <laughs> in, in, that, uh, in that place. And then Second Wine School, which is actually located at the wine bar, that's South London Wine School. So West London Wine School, Streatham Wine House, South London Wine School. And that was it as it got into the dreaded pandemic mm-hmm. that ensued in 2020. My little boy was born in January 2020. And then in March 2020, of course, the world as we knew it uh, was, was... Took a break. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, it did. And uh, we we had those three businesses. Now, of course, as with many people that have their own businesses and, uh, well, not necessarily many, but uh, some people decided to pivot. Everyone pivoted. Pivot! Uh, pivot! 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 Yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking of the Friends episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, pivot uh, is what we had to do for our businesses. So our bar became a shop and our schools became online. And we were the first to do an online class on the 1st of April that hadn't done online previously. Mm-hmm. We changed very quickly and, and, and it was very successful. We were very happy about that. I found myself, and I, I never have time, but I found myself with a little bit more time. You know, <laughs> we had at that point a, a very young child. We were moving house because we were moving out here and we had our three businesses that we were pivoting, but I felt like we could do something else. And my wife is very much similar to me. She's very ambitious and she'd already been building up um, something that we were looking to create as a supplementary resource for our already uh, students of our wine school. So if you were... Yeah to sign up as a level three student at West London Wine School, you would get access to this new portal 
which is called Wine with Jimmy, that was being designed purely for you. You know, it was going to be used as a marketing tool. We were going to say, look, do level three with us and you get access to this really exciting portal where there's lots of resources that will help you get the best from your level three course. Uh, and that's that was the genuine plan to begin with. Um, we started to put some of the videos up on YouTube just to see, you know, what people thought of them, get feedback, because we needed that, because we didn't have any of it. We were trying to actually, yes. we were reacting very quickly, uh, and we didn't have time to, you know, put it through like a pilot study and all those kind of things. So we stuck it on YouTube and see what people thought. And we had suddenly had a load of people just going uh, from America, from from Australia, from all walks of life, going, Jimmy, we want more of these. Uh, how, how can I get these videos? How can I get them if I'm not signing up to your course because I don't live in the UK? But we sat down, uh, we talked about this, my wife and I and another guy, Sam, who's the winemaker who's involved in Wine with Jimmy, and we said, let's, mm-hmm. let's um, launch it as a standalone educational portal that helps students with their WSET courses. Uh, level two, level three at that time. And now, of course, we have uh, level four. So we uploaded all of the stuff we have, written questions, multiple choice questions. We've created flashcards. Uh, we have maps that have been you know, purposely designed for us uh, that we you can do map exercises. There's loads of wonderful things, plus the video content. And we, we launched it in the summer of 2020. And by the end of 2022 now, we uh, so two and a half years down the line, we, we've got the whole level three sorted pretty much. So that has 150 videos. Then it has, you know... Something ri- to keep you going. Yeah. Written, <laughs> and the, the videos range from anywhere from sort of five minutes to half an hour uh, lots of stuff to help them they go through how to read questions correctly how to answer questions how to structure your answers and then of course there's all the content there with my maps and uh, and diagrams we have integrated google earth 3d videos within there as well and people were just loving it and lapping it up and and it's because and we'll be very honest about it wset very much the gold standard of wine education in the world. But they, as a company, have struggled in recent years because they've grown so exponentially that they can't police their own courses around Mm. the world to the highest level. Uh, And students are left, you know, there's a lot of great providers out there, but some students are left lacking in what they've learned and they need something to supplement it. And that's where our um, business model really comes in. So they sign up for it. And we did so well. And we've really started to get, you know, really good subscription rates, people paying for this service. And then people said, uh, diploma, where's the diploma stuff, Jimmy? And I'm like, you were like, oh, bloody hell, do you realize how hard? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was like, well, the level three is going to be a maximum probably in the end of something like 170, 180 videos when I get the smaller bits done, like Greece, people are just crazy. They're like, where's the Greek video? And I said, there's there's not one done because it's never been asked in a question before, so don't worry about it. Oh, you've just cursed it now. Yeah, exactly. Someone from WSET has listened and gone, that's it, I'm writing a Greek question. So I was like, well, level three is like 160, 70, 180 videos or whatever. But diploma is going to be... I don't know how you're going to do that. Well, I mean, and I started. So I completed the D1, which is the Mm -hmm. viticulture vinification. That's about 200 videos plus supplementary things like questions and multiple multiple choice questions, flashcards and so on. That's complete. I've done the Fortified. That was about 90 videos with all the supplementary stuff. Sparkling, I'm about to start filming. But D3 is the big one. So I am 35% through D3. I've completed France, Italy and Spain, which has... Amazing. collectively about 500 videos it's a lot of work i'm filming about uh, 10 to 15 videos new a week 
so I produce those, film them. They're anywhere between five and normally five and 20 minutes, somewhere around mm-hmm. that number. They get fantastic amounts of uh, viewing rates on YouTube. The average view duration is, is huge. I mean, if anybody's got kids out there, you'll probably know that you put on one of the kiddies channels where just keep your kid happy. It's like of, of a, an adult playing with toys for about an hour and kids love it. And the viewage time that that person's getting will be off the charts because the, the parents just leave it on and they're like, right, let's leave that on. Keeps the kid happy. I can get on with cleaning the house, cooking the dinner, whatever. You know, we all have grand aspirations to be the the parent that you know plays with parent their of child. The year, but maybe that's, every the, hour. that's for the next year. That's for twenty twenty three. Yeah, I mean, grand, generally it doesn't work in that in that way. So yeah, the viewing time, you know, for us is not as much as a <laughs> as one of these kiddies show things, but it does really it does really well. We get uh, advertising sponsorship from it. It's it's working really well as a as a good model and we're getting great subscription rates across the world our biggest market is the US and we're doing super well and it's getting to the point now where I, you know this year I've been to South Africa I've been to America I've been to uh, lots of places in Europe and everywhere I go I, I end up writing autographs and taking pictures <gasps> and I didn't know I was speaking with a celebrity it's not please don't call <gasps> me a celebrity I oh. find it very awkward that people when people approach me, they're, they're like, sometimes someone comes up to me and just screams in my face. And I'm like, <laughs> they, they do that to me, but that's normally just because I'm annoying and they're telling me to go away and be quiet. Yeah, yeah. It's not because they yeah, know who I am. You've just run into the back of them with the back of their yeah, car. Normally, sort of. yeah. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, cool. yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy because it's, it is a platform which puts you out into the general domain. Right. And, yes. uh, and you've got to have a thick skin because people will get in touch with you uh, upset about something that I hadn't, uh, there was one person who, uh, I didn't mention the slave trade enough in one of the historical videos of South Africa was not happy about that. And I was like, well, it is a wine video. I, and I did, I did, I did mention it as well, but I just didn't go into the, you know, the economic and social factors around it. And then um, I'll let you into another secret, which I think is just funny. And, yeah. and, and somebody might get upset about it, especially if they're French, but my goodness, the, the French, the French are just hilarious. They cannot accept if one of their words is mispronounced. Oh my God. I gave up on that a long time. I do try my best. For these episodes, typically, if I know we're talking about specific grapes, I try and make sure I've got that in my head. But you can't, as an English person, you can't say every Italian variety, every Spanish region, every well, this, French... Well, this is, this, is, this is it. Exactly. It's it's a big multidiscipline in terms of language and it's it's very complex, right? And it's, it's funny because the offshoot of having this YouTube channel wine with jimmy is that it has a little mini case study with it within how people react to the videos and what nationality <laughs> they are so uh, so georgia i did this georgian series which is halfway through it so the wines of georgia talking about you know the cradle of wine of, of the world and of every wine making that all these indigenous grape varieties and i have had 100 positive from Georgian people. Now, I cannot speak Georgian, and my pronunciation of Georgian words is probably quite poor <laughs> because it is a crazy amalgamation of Russian dialects and uh, and lots of others. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it is it's complex, but the, the, nobody from Georgia picks up on that. They don't want to... They just, they're so happy that their country is getting some limelight, and they're fantastic around it. 
but French on the oh, other side the of the coin. <laughs> if I mispronunciate one word in French, mispronounce one word, sorry, it's getting me angry. I'm even, I can't even speak English. You can't English right even now. pronounce a word in English, uh, right? No, it's crazy. It's the, the, the one that really tipped the, um, the iceberg for me was Cahors. So the region in southwest France, you know, on the river Lot, uh, yep. to an English person, we heavily pronounce the H. That's just the way Cahors. English goes. Yes, Cahors. But of course, you're not supposed to pronounce that H in any way, shape, or form. And the amount of people going, Actually, Jimmy, you must drop this and da da da. You should be more well versed in, in French and so la la. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And exactly what you said. Was and you my... said, and you said, au revoir. <laughs> <laughs> and, and put an H on the front of it. But hey, hey I'm digressing into something no, which is just a But it's true. Now, you said you've done a lot of traveling around the world this year for wine regions. Have you, I'm segueing, have you been to the Canary Islands? I have. I was there this year as well. Uh, so, Canary Islands actually was um, a family holiday trip which was booked in for April of 2020. And of course, was very quickly um, postponed, and we got to to redo this trip. It was a th- nearly a four week trip where I did a couple of weeks with the family and a couple of weeks really immersing myself in in wine. You know, in laws came over, friends came over. My wife and the kids were very much uh, um, supported. Uh, if anybody out there thinks I'm just going to sort of you know go to a wine region, leave them in a hotel, and then run off, uh, that does happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, we did the Canary Islands because. I have had an epic fascination of volcanic. Why well, is called volcanic wines? They uh, are, wine, aren't they? Wines from you know yeah. volcanicity, and yes, I am doing the Spock thing with my hands right now. <laughs> uh, but uh, I am fascinated with it. If it's from the Azores or Tokai or from Suave, from Campania, from Sicily, Mount Etna, from Oregon, in all these places have volcanicity and volcanic influence, and and I have found a very much passionate point within all of these wines. I find a commonality that I really like about them a salinity and acidity that's off the charts and typically in the reds a savory element where the iron compound in iron within the soil mm. you, you find the mineral actually helps oxidation a lot quicker so you find like a Mount Etna red or a Pieta Rosso from Campania or um, the reds from northern Hungary they all have this real sort of irony savory meaty character behind them which are just absolutely wonderful and that's what you get in the Canary Island so we went out there in, in April May Tenerife is where we stayed. Uh, I did a day trip across to Gran Canaria where Bodegas Tamaran were doing their launch party. And that's, if anybody's a football fan, that's David Silva's Bodega, who used to play for Man City, now plays for Villarreal Sociedad. And he teamed up with Jonathan Garcia from uh, Suertes de Marquez in the Ah, Suertes de Marquez. Oh, yes. very good producer. Uh, okay. For sure. Yes. And uh, they teamed up and they started to produce this real premium wine from Gran Canaria. So I did a day trip there. Uh, it was a massive party where we all got absolutely hammered on beautiful wine um, <laughs> and representing what what is really possible of Gran Canaria. But it is uh, Tenerife, which is the main area. So yes. for anybody who doesn't know it, um, the Canary Islands is a collection of islands which sits on uh, what is called a hotspot generally or on the Canary Rift. This is in the Atlantic Ocean. It sits very close to uh, Africa. It's, um, it's a, a, you know, a Spanish island, but it sits very close to Africa. 
Most of the volcanic activity in the world uh, will occur near seismic and tectonic plate activity, so where you have convergent and divergent um, plates and, and all this kind of stuff. The Ring of Fire, for example, around mm-hmm. the Pacific. Uh, so that's you know the Andes, uh, that's the Cascade Mountains, uh, that's a lot of New Zealand and, and so on, and a lot of the places uh, in the Pacific. So a lot of that happens in logical places, but there are little areas of the world where they're actually away from the plate activity. And the Canary Islands is one of these, one of these unusual areas. It sits away from plate activity on a hot spot where you have a number of volcanic activity which has arisen from the seabed, uh, some which is a, a lot steeper in, in total because it's come from the bottom of the seabed and some that's uh, on the eastern side, which is a little bit shallower. There are four active volcanoes on the Canary Islands, which sit on the islands of La Palma, El Hierro, uh, and then, of course, you have the huge one, which is Mount Tiede of Tenerife, and then Lanzarote, which is on the eastern side. Uh, it's all, all of the land here is made from uh, volcanic activity. So it's all volcanic soils, basalt, it's all tooth, it's all um, uh, things like pumice, it's all those different types of ash that you get layered in this area. So uh, volcanic activity, and there is sedimentary soils here as well from, from the oceans, so you'll find limestones and so on uh, here as well. So a collection of islands, so you have seven islands in total. Tenerife is by far the biggest, the most populated, it has the big mountain, and it's where the history really started. Um, it sits kind of in the middle, Just let's just call it the middle for... For, pretty much i guess yeah. middle slightly to the left <laughs> yeah middle to the left middle to the left middle to the up uh, yes. but um it's really the most important uh the, the important area historically we have a faction let's call them a tribe i suppose an indigenous population called the guanches and the guanches um were quite a fearsome indigenous race here and as you get like the Spanish and the Portuguese coming across here of course the Spanish notorious for dominating and invading more than anything and you have influences yeah Hernan Cortes and the Aztecs and, and all those sort of things but here you have them being really sort of whittled down the Guanches into a very sort of shell of their form themselves. But wonderfully today, like many of the Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples of the world, they are thankfully being more focused on today and their traditions are being kept alive. But of course, they were very heavily eroded by the, um, the emergence of the Spanish. But then, of course, the English, who had a significant amount of impact here. And the trade here, a big wine that came from the Canary Islands, was was a wine called the Canary Wine, which was made from Malvasia uh, in a very sweet way. And we loved it, didn't we? Uh, we, we lapped it oh up, my yeah. We, gosh, we yes. were exporting so much back to England that people down on the south coast, I think it was like Winchester area, actually raised an alarm and lit the beacons because they saw all these ships coming and they thought it was an armada coming yeah, from, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from, from Spain. So they were like shitting themselves and then they were like, oh no, actually... They're bringing us it's just delicious wine. <laughs> yeah. And then these ships headed off to the Thames. And famously, we have a wonderful part of the Docklands down there called Canary Wharf, which takes its name from the amount of shipments which are coming in from the Canary mm, Islands. Yeah, so yeah. lots of wine started to chip in. A lot of issues started to happen when England started trading with other places in much greater volume. And then the Canaries started boycotting and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, the English um, put their stamp on this area quite uh, fervently. But on North Coast Tenerife, you know, that's the key area. And that really is important because all of this influence of history has meant that today Tenerife has the most amount of vineyards, 
Plus, it has um, the uh, a really an amazing amount of DOs. The Canary Islands has 11 DOs. So that's denomination uh, of origin, which uh, Spain has uh, roughly 70. I think it's like 68 or something like that in total. Amazingly, everyone forgets about the Canary Islands. Pretty much everybody. But it has <laughs> 11. Shouldn't. 11 yeah. out of 68 of which Tenerife has five, I think so, yes. It has five, but obviously if you include the Islas Canarias, but then that can obviously include all of them put together. All the islands, yeah. Five on Tenerife, yeah. Which is crazy, because if you go to Galicia in the northwest of Spain, a very um, cemented, emerged wine area, you have Rias Baixas, Monterrey, Ribera Sacra, Valderas, and Ribereiro, which is five, right? You have five mm-hmm. that you find in, in Galicia. So you have the same amount in Galicia, that you do in just one island of the Canary Islands. So it shows you that, yes, it's volcanic, but it's mightily diverse. And I would urge you, if you do go to Tenerife, that there are two airports, you're likely to fly into the southern airport, so Tenerife South, I would urge you to leave that as quickly as possible and head right to the north. <laughs> what are you saying not to hang out with Playa Americas? <laughs> well, What's wrong with it, that? <laughs> if you don't mind being battered by the African wind, uh, the Sirocco, then you you will love it. But yeah. unfortunately... And all the dr- tourists. Well, the tourists tend to go to the west of the island, the southwest yes. and the west, which is actually a bit protected from that wind. But where the airport is, my God, it is. It's, you stand off the plane and you get battered. So it's best <laughs> to go to the north or fly to the northern airport. And the north is affected by cold winds that come from the north, the trade winds, as they call them. Mm-hmm. It's wetter. It's more lush up there. It's really green and compact. Like, I mean, it is. Yeah. The Orotava Valley is green and it's had banana production lush. up there in the mm-hmm. past. And, and it's much lusher. And that's why the British were quite keen there. But uh, the Guanches, the local indigenous population, were not too keen, of course, on all this European influence. And one of their mythology is that they locked up an evil demon, which was the devil. Inside, oh, in Mount Tady. <laughs> in Mount Tady, yeah. And they, they locked him up and then uh, they kept him there. But because they were not uh, protecting their land against the Europeans... The story goes that Mount, you know, this devil was unleashed by the good gods <laughs> uh, and then, of course, um, unleashed all this lava and it actually destroyed the original settlement of Garachino and then they moved that to Puerto de la Cruz when that got affected quite heavily by lava as well. They moved it to Santa Cruz, which is on the other side, thankfully quite far away from Tierra, so it can't be affected by it. But I quite like that. It's, uh, there's a lot of sort of mythology there's some fun stories in there. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, sure. So what I would say for anybody who is interested in just a little bit of the history that Jimmy is touching on, we both, I checked with you, we both have an amazing book. It's called The Epic Wines of the Canary Islands by Santo Baines. Yeah. And the amount of information in it, and this guy set about, he's an English guy, yeah. and he set about because he found the islands as fascinating as I guess Jimmy does, um, that he wanted to read a book on it and it just didn't exist. And so much research has gone into this and there's so much history. It just goes into everything about geography, terroir, the grapes, everything. So there's a lot of those kind of stories and learning more about the Guanches and the wars over the times in history. It's fascinating. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's a fantastic book. It lays it out in a really uh, really interesting way that tends to move through history, but then by great variety at the same time which is fascinating because Canary Islands needs to be mentioned also as its strategic location in terms of Europeans found it very strategically important as a gateway refreshment area of refreshment station before heading out to the Americas so 
you'd often find that ships would stop here or in the Azores or Madeira before heading out to uh, the Americas. And it became very famous for that. So it became quite wealthy off the uh, off the back of that. But it also meant that a lot of trade went through it. So a lot of grapes were brought from the continent to the Canary Islands, and then also backwards from the Americas this way. But the, the former is more important because we have a grape very important on the Iberian Peninsula, which is called Palomino. Mm-hmm. And Palomino is the grape of sherry, Andalusia. Andalusia is uh, where, you know, great voyages um, were started, you know. So Christopher Columbus set off from uh, Cadiz and he set off and, uh, and and came to the Canary Islands before heading out to uh, Haiti and beyond. And Magellan set off from Huelva and then went down to the Canary Islands, but then headed south to um, South Africa before going towards the Spice Route. You're like an encyclopedia of historic well, knowledge. I, I do love history with, with wine specifically. I've, and geography. <laughs> and geography as well. Well, history, we, we, uh, During lockdown, I did launch a history of wine course, but that's another... Wow, uh, that's another, for another day. Another day. So let's go back to this grape variety that we know in Andalusia in the south, uh, yep. famous for making sherry as Palomino. Yep. But but in the Canary Islands, it is called Listan Blanco, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I think, like we said earlier, we talked about, you know, grapes getting mixed up. And this is just commonplace. But the, I like the fact that this has a distinctly different name than Palomino. So Palomino, a grape from, as you mentioned, Andalusia. Uh, it's actually named after a knight who was a knight of Alfonso. <laughs> is it now? <laughs> yeah. There's a, uh, Alfonso the 10th or the 11th was the... Um, or the first or the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tisha, good. Uh, yeah, he, he, was the, he was the king who uh, was one of the final... Uh, so I'm talking of the King Alfonso. He, he defeated the Moors, one of the final battles, Granada, all that kind of stuff. But then he became very ill and he was fed um, small plates. And this was in Seville. It was, it was holed up in Seville. And one of his knights was Palomino, was named Palomino. And they were feeding him these small plates, which later became known as tapas. And that was the creation of tapas and, uh, okay, and like pinchos. And Palomino was uh, a knight of Alfonso and uh, would also serve him the wines of this area. And he was so happy that he nursed him back to health, or he was one of those that helped, that uh, a grape was apparently named after him. So Palomino was uh, named after him. And now horses, of course, are named after it as well. So this grape is then taken across to the Canary Islands, right, where in the annals of time it gets lost as Palomino and with all the different changes of hands from Spanish, uh, English and uh, and back again and the influences from the Americas, everybody kind of forgets about the heritage of Palomino. Nobody kind of writes it down and, and it becomes known as Listan Blanco. And I love that because if you go and taste Palomino, Palomino is rarely made into still white wine because the honest truth of it is that it's it makes that wines exactly. It's neutral, <laughs> neutral and better. Dis, you know, made into a fortified or, or distilled into brandy. Now, once again, let's put the word generally in front of that sentence because <laughs> I actually do know a few Palominos which are sexy and wonderful, but. Uh, they're generally, generally not. Generally, they're not. And you'd say non-aromatic, neutral, descriptors of Palomino, right, generally speaking. Listan Blanco on volcanic soils in this subtropical climate of the Canary Islands is saline. It's aromatic. It has often a chamomile note to it, uh, an almost floral uh, touch to it. Mm. It could be slightly mm. nutty. It has this kind of lemon peel note to it. They're wonderful. And if you then just link, you say, oh, but Listan Blanco is Palomino. And then you take the description of Palomino 
from, uh, say, wine grapes to Jancis Robinson, and you're reading this out, and you go, neutral, non-aromatic, and then you taste yeah. a Listan Blanco from the Canary Islands, so you're like, what the fuck are they on about? I mean, it's epically different. But then you're also forgetting, well, you're not forgetting, but what we haven't mentioned is that there are so many old vines on these islands because they avoided phylloxera. So you've got already volcanic soils. You've got obviously the Atlantic influence and winds and probably bringing in some salinity anyway. So already there's this wonderful volcanic mineral expression. But then these older vines have concentrated these flavors and now with more understanding of the vines a lot of the winemakers are even aging these these wines afterwards and you can get something so fascinating so interesting can't you with the San Blanco yeah you're, ex- you're exactly right and to be honest uh, it's just it's not just with the San Blanco it's with most of the gambit here there is your point and then a second point I'd like to add to that. The first point, your point, is on the age of the vines. Mm. The second point is on the work of the Vignatigo team, uh, which is Vignatigo are uh, based or Vignatigo, if you want to be more Canary Island about it. They're based on the border of the Orotava and Icodendote Arsora, which is the DO just going to the east of that. And they did a lot of work. The current winemaker is Jorge, his father's name is Juan Jesus. And oh, okay. Juan, uh, Juan Jesus uh, worked on the smaller islands dotted around the major islands, like El Pinar, for example, and El Hierro, and, and these sort of things, mm-hmm. reclaiming these old varieties which have been lost to people's records. Uh, and they're the two big movements, I think. Uh, the fact that these old vines are still in, in existence and then reclaiming these old varieties. We've got varieties now like Negromol, Baboso Negro, Baboso Blanco, and uh, all these different weird, obscure varieties with a very old heritage behind them, which are making fascinating wines. And your first point is on the age of the vines. And yep. you're exactly right. Phylloxera hates sand and Phylloxera hates volcanoes. And so uh, this doesn't... Don't we but... all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not the Actually, sand part. It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of my and perfect sun. holiday. Volcanic and... Yep. Yeah, volcanoes and sand. I love mountains and I love sand. So. Yeah, well, no, I love a volcano as just long as it doesn't go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, Phylloxera, of course, means that there's a lot of ungrafted vines here. And th- I-, I kid you not, I've-, I've seen every way, shape and form of vine training system in the world. I've been to Miguel Torres's uh, plots in Catalonia where they have the, you know, like 62 They've done all these types. like almost experimental, haven't they? They've yeah, done everything. every type of vine training from Geneva double curting to cordon to guillot to whatever. And the one that uh, I'd never seen it in the flesh before uh, and it was the first time this year that I was out there for that was in Orotava Valley when I spent you some time... You talk about Trenzado. Exactly, with oh with um, Jonathan Garcia from Suertes de Marquez, uh, spent a lot of time with us, he was fantastic, and then managed to get us on the guest list for that party in Gran Canaria as well, which was fantastic. So we, we, uh, we did the, we went to the winery, and then we walked around the vineyards, uh, a lot of the small plots that go into Suertes de Marquez, and we tasted... Oh, well, first of all, we've got to see these vines, right? So, as you mentioned, they are the cordon transado. So, cordon meaning uh, normally a horizontally trained bit of wood. Mm-hmm. And then transado means braided. So, they actually. It's amazing. I've braid. seen the pictures. Yeah. Oh. It's epic. So, uh, what happens is the, the vine is rooted to the ground, of course. That is your logical thing, the vines. <laughs> it, but it's, That's what it should be. It roots mm. to the ground and it, it comes up as a trunk. But then the trunk is often split off like a fork. You know, if you have a normal cordon, cordon royal or whatever you want to call that, royat, uh, you have the trunk and then that's in one horizontal bit of wood, right? So mm-hmm. 
and then you have shoots coming off that. Um, imagine that happening, but then instead of just that one horizontal, you have like a fork process. So like a an absolute fork that you use as cutlery with mm-hmm. maybe three or four prongs to it. Um, then going for an extensive amount of meters, usually somewhere between five to 15 meters with the extreme being 20, 25 meters. Oh my so God, not, that's not, Yeah, not only is it one cordon, it is multiple cordons going, you know, some of these can go, if you total it up, about 80 metres, which is crazy. And that's because there is exceptional amounts of vigour in the soils due to the, this is a so volcanic... fertile. Yep. Fertile, but, but also all that minerals, it's been broken down so much by erosion that it's actually accessible by the plants. So they're able to really, really grow, you know, epically grow. So they make these huge vines, which I timed one. It's on my Instagram feed uh, from when I was there in, in May. So I timed it. I walked from one end to so the end of it all the way to the root where it goes, you know, right right into the ground, to the trunk, to the yeah. root. And I walked in. It was 40 seconds to get from one. And I was walking. It's down a That's slope. Insane. But it's walking. I'm doing step by step by step. So you're talking a huge amount of uh, uh, these things are institutions. They're architectural institutions because... They're old. They are between most of them 100 to 300 years old. They are braided. So it it is a bit of architecture and a bit of engineering going into it. And they are time consuming. And get this, this was brilliant. I I turned around, my mind like goes off in tangents, as you know, from this podcast. (laughs) And I, um, you know, Jonathan was telling us about this. He was going, yeah, some of them are 10, 20. You have multiple parts to the fork and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I know these guys make single vineyard, right? And we know many people in the world make, make single vineyard. So I turned around to him and went, so you could make a single vine wine then? Because mm-hmm. of the and amount it, of quantity the amount. And, and he turned around and said, one vine, yeah. Yeah, he said, I've thought about it. It's possible, but it's problematic because these vines eventually do die. So you could just lose your production of one wine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's gone. So, But it would work for a while, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. I mean, you know, it worked for a good sort of few decades, I reckon. But uh, they are hard to look after. So you've got to be willing to put in, you know, you whereas you might have, for say, a 10 hectare vineyard of, of guillo vines, you might have um, two or three people working on it. You've definitely got about 15, 20 people working on a on a vineyard like this. So you need a, a labour pool that's available. You need to be able to pay them. Uh, but my God, it, it is epic. And if you've never seen it, please do. It's on my list and I'm yes. aware of it. I want to see these braids. It, they look brilliant in pictures. And of course, as well, for anyone who's been to Tenerife, normally in the in the southern part, and especially southwest where all the tourists go, it's so, so dry. But as we've already talked about, the three of the five DOs in Tenerife are in the north and it's so much more lush and it's so much more green. And so not only do you have a land that's not necessarily what people think of having already been to Tenerife most likely, but then you've got this most unique, crazy, traditional Trenzado, yeah. trained vines. No, it's, amazing. it's amazing. You're exactly right to where you have a concentration of the DOs. If I, if I was you, I'd you know, fly in, go straight up to the north and stay in Puerto de la Cruz, which is the city, not the capital, that's Santa de la Cruz, which is on the uh, eastern side. But um, south, it, yeah. it, it, this is the northern part of Tenerife, Puerto de la Cruz, and it's smack bang in the middle. And it's really good gastronomically. Uh, it situates you really well. For visiting all this. If you want a bit more traditional and you'll go a bit more historical, you'll go across to Garancino, which is more towards the northwest, but it's brilliant up there. And those three DOs, you're right there. There's also a sneaky fourth, which is just over onto the uh, sort of uh, the southeastern side, which is called 
Val de Huima, which is really up and coming as well. So mm-hmm. uh, there's some, uh, it's brilliant. It's an absolutely wonderful area. Well, the Val de Huima, they're saying, is one to watch for Muscatel, interestingly enough. So that's... It is. Uh, the Muscatel I tried is good. There's some good skin contact expressions, but I still think uh, the best stuff would come out of the... The Huima area is the Listan Blanco. Okay. Uh, but they do some really good uh, Mama Huelo. They do some really good Gual as well, which are two varieties that like more warmth. So you find Gual and Mama Huelo by mm-hmm. the coast. Uh, so at normally like 100, 200 metres altitude. Lovely aromatic, aren't they? Gorgeous aromatic. Uh, floral, nectarine, all that sort of stuff. Then as you come up the mountainside... You have the likes of uh, Listan Blanco, Listan Negra, for example, and that's where you find the wines being more, more, more obviously mm-hmm, volcanic, mm-hmm. more salinity, more focused in their in their expression. Well, let's look at the grapes quickly, because there is no way that we can go into the details of the Canary Islands on this episode, I realise. But we've touched on Liston Blanco, which is the most planted grape variety. Then very often, if it's not by itself, it's blended with those aromatic two whites that you talked about, Gual and Mama Juelo. Then let's go back to the Listan. So Listan Negro is the black variety. So Listan Blanco is the parent of Listan Negro. What are your thoughts on Listan Negro? Because that, again, like you said, showcases the volcanic soils beautifully. Yes. So Listan Negro is uh, thought to be indigenous to the Canary Islands, uh, is what we think. Uh, We... We know it's not a colour variant of Listan Blanco, so it's it's genetically distinct from it. Most planted, exceptionally vigorous, and I love this variety. I think it's fascinating. It's a variety that is, I, I would say, in terms to understand its its flavour, it's better to understand its characteristic immediately. So, as I mentioned a little bit earlier about vulcanicity, Listan mm. Negro is one that really does work very well in these volcanic soils. It's high vigour, as we know, so it can be produced uh, as a braided vine. It's, it's possible, but large vines generally. And um, there's a lot of iron in these soils due to the extreme fertility that one finds in, in these volcanic soils. So Listan Negro gets grown in this volcanic soil where it's fairly thin-skinned, it therefore produces a wine with colour, which is similar to like a Nebbiolo or a, a Shinamavro from Greece, for example, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this transparency through it. But it's often not a bright red. It's more of a kind of a bricky garnet sort of uh, uh, approach to it. Uh, and then has this wonderful lift. So generally speaking, on the nose, you'll find uh, red fruits, but they tend to be towards dried, even when fairly young. So mm-hmm. you might get on some of the variants that have some whole berry or carbonic production methods, you might get much brighter red fruits. So you're looking at, you know, cherry, strawberry, red currant, cranberry, but then dry all of those fruits. And, and that's typically what you find on even a list of negro with a few a few years behind it. So that's the fruit that comes out. Then there is the volcanicity that comes out in a very mm. savoury way. When it's really well aged, you'll find it's very soya sauce, umami. Uh, when it's younger, it's more sort of meaty, smoky, and dried herbs, a barrage of dry herbs, things <laughs> like, you know, whatever, oregano and sage and basil and all those kind of notes um, come, come absolutely jumping out the glass. So fruit-laden herbal and then that volcanicity uh, really really lovely comes through as a consumer if you're trying this you've got to be accepting of 
the volcanicity part of it, so the volcanic elements, where it's going to really produce a massive amount of acidity, almost salinity, but also something we call a reductive nature in the wines. Now, volcanic soils produce very reductive notes in wine, but really this is a a whole sort of three-hour podcast where you need someone like Jamie Good to come in and and talk through it. But um, there is sulfur found in soils, there is sulfur found in in grapes, in wine, uh, and some of these in certain uh, conditions can produce what's called VSEs, volatile sulfur compounds, which are at the extreme note, you know, rotten vegetable sewage and, and uh, are very displeasing to 99.9% You're not selling of people. it, you're not selling it. <laughs> well, uh, and then in small amounts, it's um, it's actually something which gives you smoke or gives yes. you that slightly sort of char, burn sort of sulfur to it, but mm-hmm. uh, in small amounts. And they, they do actually dissipate with a bit of oxygen as well. But you've got to be open to that because to some people, it may be a strange smell. It might not be something they're used to if they're just drinking kind of soft, plump, you know, Merlots and Riojas and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'll give you one example in case. Uh, with all these trips I do, I always come back and do a Jimmy's Best Of at the wine school. And I, yeah. I hosted um, Jimmy's Best of the Canary Islands. It was only about, uh, it was like two months ago. And um, a lot of regulars on it. And my regulars are fantastic, but they they can air their opinions. They feel comfortable to be very, very uh, vocal about their comp- uh, sort of opinions. And one Which of we my, support. Yes. Uh, not most of the time, it's wonderful. But I went through a whole speech about reductiveness in, in wines. And I said, look, it might be unusual for you, but um, it's something that takes time getting used to. This one person was tasting the Alista Negro. It was from Surtas de Marquez. And... Mm-hmm. Um, decided to shout out said this is disgusting i cannot get my head around this it's just it's just like just so much sulfur chemical in this and i went look that's what it's like now it needs a bit of oxygen if you work with listang negro very reductively in the cellar so you protect it you protect you protect that very reductive nature to it a lot of producers like to work more oxidatively to try and sort of uh, create more complexity and soften out those notes. So, uh, but it depends. It depends. Some people, uh, you know, the grapes are much more reductive and the process is more reductive. So it's something you have to be willing for that, I think. You also have to be willing for a high acids, like I mentioned, and also must be willing for savoury elements. I think most people are fine with acids and savoury notes, but they might be slightly... Um, challenged by reductive <laughs> characteristics well listen that is the joy of these wines and we won't go into listan prieto because it's not actually grown very much it might be growing a bit more now these days but i have touched on that in other podcasts when talking about chili and how that is pais and how it's traveled across and now the majority you're going to find in argentina or even mm-hmm. mission it's called mission in california so that great variety is now really made its way over to the americas but let's touch on I tell you what, let's touch on Negromol and then Baboso Negro because Negromol is actually the, well, I say father or mother, it depends. So it was Negromol and Listan Blanco that came together, natural crossing that created the Listan Negro. So Negromol is, when I was reading my, the epic wines of Canary Islands, Santo Ban says that on the island, they talk about this as, this is the Pinot Noir of the Canaries, apparently. <laughs> the reason for that, Santo is, if you read the chapter on Vinatigo, which is the producer from, uh, you know, towards the mm-hmm. north, northwest, who, uh, with uh, Juan Jesus and now his son Jorge have really sort of 
you know, found cuttings of all these obscure varieties and rescued them. And, and now they're being released to the Canary Islands in much greater detail. Um, it is Santo spending time with Jorge and and Juan Jesus. And they describe it like that. So it's very much through Vinatico, mm. which uh, this is. And if you taste the Negramol from Vinatico, which uh, I've got lots in my cellar, I, I absolutely think it's wonderful wine. You can see why. I mean, if you do elegant or light amounts of skin contact with this variety, you can make a paler expression, but they are still savory. They still carry the very specific stamp of vulcanicity and canary character to mm-hmm, it, but they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Negramol has been found to be identical to an Andalusian variety called Mola, and hence that's where the Negramol bit comes from. Uh, it's hardly grown in Andalusia today, so it's one of these that's kind of um, died out in its homestead, but um, taken flight and, and done well in, in other areas. And its big loose bunches can be quite herbaceous, uh, and that's actually one of the major reasons why it tends to be blended. So Negramol is commonly blended in Tacarante, which is the other side, so that's just north of Santa Cruz, uh, mm-hmm. on the north coast still, but towards the eastern side. Well, and this is the largest DO, isn't it? Yes, on yeah. Tacarante Asantejo is, is nice and large. It's actually where the Vinos de Tenerife and the, all the DOs are based. They have they have a, a big tasting room there mm. within the DO. And I can't remember the town. It's uh, Well, it's actually just outside, outside Tacarante. Uh, okay. And uh, it's... Um, Really worth a visit. It's a really fun place to go to have lots of local cuisine, gastronomy, and and, and wonderful wine. Um, but yes, uh, Negramol typically blended, typically in that area, but being more and more found as a single varietal, you find it blended by producers like Crater, which is Crater in English, mm-hmm. and then the other dudes up there, Monge, M O N J E, Monge. They blend it typically, uh, whereas Vinatico do a single varietal. If you do go out there, do go to the um, the producer Monge, Bodegas Monge, because they have a sex museum at the bottom of their winery. Uh, <laughs> oh, which... I am sold. <laughs> <laughs> which they call wine and wine sex. Wine and they... sex? Yeah, That's yeah. perfect. It's they a put beautiful on... combination. They, they've got all this artwork, which is very suggestive. They've got a lot of um, burlesque-type nights going on there, and uh, it's, it's a bit of a thing. It's a bit of a, you know, they hold these big nights there, and you know, I've never been to one, but I can remember. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a <laughs> maybe bit like you don't want to. the Venetian mask kind of parties, you know, I don't know something like that. But uh, what happens in Monche stays yeah. in Monche. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, the style, the style of Negramol, then, as mentioned, quite. It can be light and elegant, but generally towards medium bodied. They have that stamp of volcanicity, but much more fresh fruit behind a Negramol in comparison to a Lista Negro. Uh, mm-hmm. And they can have a herbaceous element to them as well. But um, I love it. Seek out, you must seek out the Vignatico, Negramol. Uh, it's um, off the charts wonderful. Really, really okay. good. Brought into the UK by Hallgarten. So you should be able to find okay. it. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Actually, there's quite a lot of Tenerife wines actually in the UK. We're very, very lucky. Yeah, we certainly are. Now, if people don't like the idea of a lighter style and they want something heavy, they want to go for. Barbosa Negro, which I love what that translates to, which is slimy black. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which is really big and perfumed and much more full-bodied and kind of sweeter black fruit. Yeah, I have some in in my cellar. The the style said there's kind of two expressions of Barbosa Negro. Okay. Um, Now, once again, it all comes back to Juan Jesus and Jorge. They were the ones who rescued this variety and then started to 
planted in a nursery block and a mother block and eventually release it out. And the Dio of Abona um, has taken on a bit. And Abona is the Dio in South Tenerife. So it's the um, the south to the south, uh, the west uh, so where the um, the southern airport is and so on. Where Players de las Americas is. Exactly. Well, obviously, the better stuff is obviously inland, but just to give you an idea. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you really are looking at the foothills of, the southern foothills of Mount Tierra is where, where you would find these vineyards. Um, really, really fun area, but, but really uh, generally, historically, where a lot of commercial stuff has come from which has been feeding the um the tourism scene uh, you know the sort of general tourism scene and then a couple of producers here have uh, adopted the babosa negro and um i cannot remember the name of uh, the producer today it's definitely got fuentes a fountain in the name um i haven't visited them but i did try their wines because santo mm-hmm. santo baines recommended giving it a go and it's exactly the description that you said it it was in your face, dark black fruits, <laughs> licorice, spice, powerful uh, and dark. But if you try the Boboso, which is produced by Vinatico or produced by mm. the likes of Suertes de Marquez, uh, it's actually uh, produced in a more of an elegant style, uh, which has more brambly fruits, sort of red and black combined. But really, that's... I think really all you can find of Boboso Negro. There's not much of it. Mm. Um, I did try Boboso Blanco when I was out there. That's the one of my favourite varieties um, that I tried from Gran Canaria, uh, which was okay. exotic, very very exotic from Gran Canaria from um, from Bodegas Tamara. My God, honestly, I've just realised they, there are so many. I think this is the point. You've got these interesting flavours from the volcanic soils. These are prephylloxera vines and there's so many of these old varieties that, you know, I've either adapted or they kind of speak of the history from thousands of years ago. Sure, yeah. What's the other great big red? Uh, Casillana Negra? Casillana Negra, yes. We need yeah. another hour and a half to even probably go through the grape varieties so we might have to stop now we might have to do this another time <laughs> i would urge everybody to visit the the other thing we, we didn't touch upon uh, i think i briefly mentioned is that the climate is subtropical so mm-hmm. it is often lauded and certainly by marketing people that that it's the most perfect climate in the world because winter is about 20 to 22 degrees celsius and then summer is about 27 28 degrees so it's never really cold and it's never really really that hot and it's a beautiful balance for that. And you can see why the Brits kind of flooded here. It used to also, mm-hmm. the Brits used to come here during the Victorian age as a retreat to get away from things like the smog in London. It was like a health retreat to come to the north part of Tenerife to get the vitamin D they needed to get the fresh air. Uh, but it was, was still quite warm. And then, of course, they had all this wonderful wine and banana plantations and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah. Yeah, and apparently in the Dio Abona, which we talked about, which is in the southwest, but right at the top at the highest vineyards that are planted, that it goes up even up to like one thousand seven hundred meters above sea level. So these yep. are like the highest vines yes. in Europe. Yep. Right up there, they're trying to coin it. There's a place that they're kind of trying to push for this is a place for spiritual retreats and cleansing <laughs> and you know, so this that apparently they're trying to do that now, bring it back. So there you go, everyone. You need to go. Seventeen hundred 
meters above sea level, kind of middle of the island, quite close to Mount Tady, and um, just zen. Done. Drink a nice glass of wine, get some fresh air. Go find yourself, yeah. Oh, beautiful. I, I suppose you should you should mention Lanzarote as well. And uh, I know the, the other islands like La Palma, El Hierro, and Gomera are all interesting for um, their very small productions, but some f- really fun stuff. But on the uh, on the eastern side, northeastern side is Lanzarote, which uh, mm-hmm. you must, must um, look to visit because it is a lot of vines are in place here but it's very very low density because it's the driest island 150 millimeters of rain per year on average which is next to nothing and they have to do shockingly low everything in their place to get moisture into those roots so they have these big um conical uh, holes with the roots sitting in the middle which are dug to uh, sort of trap the moisture to go down to the roots and then they they build walls on the north and the and the western side to protect it against the winds, which can be quite harsh on this island. So, and the soils are so black. I mean, it just yes. looks like you're it's something yeah, yeah. I don't know from space. But everybody, there is actually one episode on Lanzarote. Oh, would you believe it? You if you go, yes, if you go back to episode forty nine, that is a whole episode on the wines of Lanzarote. Oh, cool. So yeah. slowly, so we're going to have to cover I, all. I of do them. not need to mention it, which is great because I, I know we've been going no, for two hours and twenty people. minutes now. So. <laughs> little bit of time but hey my god you are full of knowledge so thank you jimmy honestly we've just touched the surface i think that hopefully people are going to be very excited now to try these wines because um i am i'm going to go and order some i think today (laughs) i need to get some more wines from tenerife so thank you pleasure of course do look out for my new wines when they come out next year yes summertime will be the likelihood of those so do look out for those on all good channels you know your instagrams and such but yeah come to the wine school come to the wine bar and check out wine with jimmy if you need help with your wine studies all the way up to diploma yay magic thank Thank you you so much speak to you soon take care bye True to my word, I have ordered some wines from Tenerife. So do check out my Instagram at eat, sleep, underscore wine, repeat to see what I'm drinking. Now, Jimmy and I mentioned a few times the author of the book, The Epic Wines of the Canary Islands. His name is Santo Banz, and I want to tell you wine lovers out there who have had your interest piqued by this episode that you can, in fact free of charge, download this book. You just need to go to www.canary.wine. Now, I will leave the link in the show notes, actually, along with the link to the Lanzarote Island episode as well. Now, as always, I finish with a wine quote, and this is from Stephen Fry. Many of you probably know who he is, English actor and writer, and he has said, Wine can be a better teacher than ink, and banter is often better than books. Well, (laughs) of course I quite agree, and especially as I host this podcast. Right, that's it for today's episode. Next week, I am talking with the Jasper Morris, British master of wine and an absolute expert in Burgundy. So yes, you have guessed correctly. We will be talking about Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and all things Bourgogne. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do take out a moment to rate the podcast or leave a review on Apple and on Spotify. Share the podcast across your socials and until next week, cheers to you.